Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. We're all born with a core drive, and that's to attach with uh, someone for comfort, care, uh, tension, soothing, appreciation. It's far more powerful than our drive for food or warmth. It's the most important drive human beings have. And the first adaptive capability that an infant develops uh, roughly a month is the capability of making eye contact, finding another another human's eyes and locking in. And that's because in that moment of that dyadic uh, exchange, when you make eye contact with someone and you experience a sense in that eye contact, in their facial expression and all the nonverbal cues, that you are going to be, you can expect attunement, which means they'll maintain their gaze, they won't look away, they won't give you a look of disgust or shame, that they will uh, essentially be available. Uh, That turns in, that results in the secretion of oxytocin, a very, very powerful reward neurotransmitter associated with bonding and it really amplifies all of the positive, uh, essentially, effects and feelings associated with interpersonal connection. So when a mother and infant, for example, lock eyes, uh, engage in touch, there's, uh, in both infant and parent, there's this secretion of oxytocin which is evolution's way of uh, essentially rewarding, especially the mother, for all the work she has to do. I mean, if you look at what the work that is entailed on raising an infant to adult life, all of the attendant anxieties and fears and concerns and just the sheer demand of parenting, You have to wonder, why would anybody do that? Well, the answer is because in that immediate early dyadic uh, attunement where people make eye contact, where infant and parent make eye contact, there's this just uh, natural selection installed in us, this real rewarding, intoxicating, very blissful, uh, some people even, you know, refer to it as a kind of just deeply transcendent state of pleasure and connection. And uh, so important things uh, happen when we get secure uh, attachment. Uh, It deactivates our sympathetic nervous system. It allows us to go into the healthiest state of your nervous system, which is the rest and digest. It allows you to have your emotions regulated Uh, Human beings, especially in the first 15, 20 years of life, are very, very, very poor at auto-regulating their emotions, their affects. So if you're in distress, you're angry, you're frightened, you're lonely, you are uh, sad, you will not be able to regulate those very successfully on your own. You require uh, another human being to, uh, through limbic co-regulation, return you back to a state of comfort and ease and uh, where you are less um, uh, agitated and distressed. Um, In terms of, there's so many reasons why uh, we need, I mean as a social species, why attachment lies at the very heart of our psychobiological development and well-being. A study of infants in institutions where attachment was not available there was in uh, Romanian under Ceausescu uh, institutions of orphans where they would feed the orphans, you know, clothe them, put them in uh, cots, but actually for some bizarre 
reason only they could possibly explain, did not hold touch or spend long periods of time with the infants. And the vast majority of them died, even though they had all their food and uh, food, their food and warmth and everything available, they died. And those that didn't die wound up with extreme levels of what's called affect hunger, which is an insatiable need for attention uh, and an inability to regulate one's own emotions. When people have affect hunger, they will try to get love from anyone indiscriminately, especially those who are emotionally unavailable. Uh, in adult life, David Rolfs, uh, University of Louisville, did a massive study of uh, meta-analysis of 90 studies. 500 million people, that's half a billion people, were in these studies. And they found that single men die 8 to 16 years earlier than men who are in relationships. And women, it's 7 to 15 years earlier for women not in relationships than women who are in some form of relationship. Now that doesn't mean you have to be in a relationship with a sexual or romantic partner. It simply means that the intimate, authentic exchange of emotions, closeness, the ability to disclose disturbing experiences is fundamental to all of our well-being. Our entire species evolution from Homo habilis to now, 2.5 million years, we spent entirely in clans. And if we got kicked out of a clan, if a bond was broken, it could mean death. So it's extremely important for us to maintain secure attachments. Amri Gilead, the head of, I think, the psychology department at the University of Kansas, very famous psychologist, notes that uh, those without secure attachments it's as dangerous as both smoking a pack a day and drinking like an alcoholic in terms of your health. And um, there was a study that after coronary bypass operations, those who were in secure attachments lived were three times likelier to be alive in 10 years than those without. So we, are, we heal better, our immune systems are better, we regulate our, our emotions better, we're more likely to stay in the healthy rest and digest state. So uh, what are the fundamentals of secure attachment? Finding someone who is available, that you can connect with, that there's a sense of reliability, that they're present in your life, and that they are not distracted. Two is attunement and mirroring, which means somebody who stops, pays attention, and listens to what you're going through or notes or your nonverbal cues and gets what you're feeling. They mirror back, they reflect back to you through their own verbal, nonverbal countenance that they understand that you're sad, frightened, frustrated, lonely, happy, excited, overwhelmed, and so forth. Three is somebody that's soothing, somebody that will, when you're around them, you feel already, just by their presence, this sense that um, you're less vulnerable, that you are less alone in the world. And four is a sense of somebody who delights in you, in your achievements, in your, uh, just for the fact that you show up, any that they care and they acknowledge your efforts and perseverance in life. So now we're getting to the really heart of tonight's talk. Um, the earliest relationships in life, in the, the classic attachment period, when the right hemisphere is being formed and literally being bombarded daily with tens of millions of new neurons depending upon the daily interactions with between infant and parent, all the right hemispheres being wired. These early relationships define what love is for us. They define our expectations of others, whether we're safe in the world, whether we can expect care or not. They wire our core sense of self and whether we have a sense of um, a, a, a secure sense of self, a wounded sense, or an incomplete sense of self, and so forth. So 
Um, what are the basic uh, uh, types of attachment and what happens? Well, infants that establish a reliable bond with a caregiver where they feel confident that when they have any emotional experience, there's somebody there who stop, pay attention, soothe, stay with them, wind up with what's called a secure base. And if you have a secure base, it means you're going to be willing to explore. You're going to be uh, capable of, uh, you'll feel confident with others in the strange test, which they give infants at a year and a half. Secure babies, after the mother leaves the room, they'll cry for a moment, but then they'll turn to a stranger and they'll crawl over to the stranger and bond. So they feel a sense of positive uh, expectations of others. But most crucially, the child that feels secure is going to be spending most of its life in the ventral parasympathetic state of the nervous system where they can relax, where their, their body feels comfortable, their stomach's not tight, their out-breath is relaxed and long, they're capable of uh, essentially soothing, they are in a state of ease and comfort, they feel at home when they're with their caregiver. So they associate attachment with this feeling of being at home, being relaxed, being in the most beneficial state of the nervous system. Insecure infants, uh, babies who, uh, infants who had a sporadic secure att attachment, sometimes got attention, care, soothing, other times didn't, um, who essentially, when they were with a caregiver, had to be vigilant, anxious, hyper-aware, because they weren't sure if their caregiver was going to be paying attention or not, whether they were going to be available or not. Sometimes this means there was a split in the family, a divorce, or there might have been a caregiver who was overwhelmed by responsibilities and only could give attention some of the time. Maybe it was uh, a, a, a parent who at one point early on was available and then due to uh, work or other commitments became far less available. Whatever is the underlying cause, the infant associates being with the caregiver with the state of anxiety, the state of having to be on guard, excited, because they're getting something that is not often given to them. So it's a mixture of excitement, but also a kind of hypervigilance. They have to maintain alertness. So the baby that is classified as anxious will be the one that when the mother, even before the mother or father leaves, the baby is already reading the cues in the mother. Because anxious people have an amazing ability to find and spot the slightest sense of, I'm going to leave now. So the baby becomes aware, even before the mother has left, that something's happening and the baby will cling to the mother. When the mother leaves the room, the baby will become fully preoccupied, cry, amplify her emotions in the attempt to get the mother back. So she will essentially use heightened emotions to get attachment. Uh, she will not turn, this baby will not turn to the stranger. She doesn't care about anyone else. She's using her amplified emotions to get attention, to get the mother back. And even when the mother returns, that baby fails to be soothed because she doesn't trust that the mother or father will stay with her. So in this case, uh, children who then grow up with anxious attachment in adult life, they associate attachment with this state of being excited because it's not going to be regular and also it's going to be um, they, they have a feeling that they're always on the verge of being abandoned uh, and there's a reason for that I'll talk about that in a moment avoidant are infants that uh, gave up on attachment they their parents their interaction with their caregiver was so unsoothing, so dissatisfying. The parent was always either depressed or angry or distracted to a point where the infant eventually goes, you're not soothing me, so I don't care about you. 
And the infant basically then associates attachment with, I just want to be left by myself. If I do have to deal with you, I just want to get my food and then be able to go away and play with my toys. And the avoided child in the strange test, even at one and a half, doesn't care that their parent has left the room, doesn't even notice, will go over, play with toys, doesn't attempt to engage with the stranger either, but sits there and tries to auto-regulate by playing with toys. And then when the parent returns, guess what? They're indifferent. And you can look online and see the strangeness. It's literally jaw-dropping when you see the difference in behaviors in babies if that early in life. And then finally, the disorganized infant is uh, frightened of their caregiver. Their caregiver is scared. And so they associate attachment with uh, overwhelm, a desire to hide, uh, dissociative states. They gravitate to situations that are dangerous, that recreate that early experience. So, um, one, people are drawn to uh, attach to the same kind of caregiver that they had in childhood because, uh, in adult life, because uh, the right hemisphere of the brain, which essentially is largely wired by age two, uh, is drawn to the familiar. You would think that if you had insecure childhood or avoidant, you didn't have a good bond with your caregiver, that you would want to compensate and find someone who's secure. Mm -mm. Not the way it works. Our right hemisphere always is drawn to the same, what's familiar. So if somebody, especially disorganized people, tragically who had uh, violent or abusive or scary or dysregulated parents, they will almost invariably wind up in conflictual, violent, scary relationships in their adult life. Uh, children who are insecure in terms of anxious attachment will, uh, who, did, who only got sporadically available attention, will be drawn to emotionally avoidant or dismissive individuals, and likewise, avoidant, dismissive adults will be drawn to anxious because they both recreate for each other the worst hits of each other's childhood, which left the deepest ingraining and embedded the deepest, uh, because believe it or not, the brain also has negativity bias. So the most negative, scary, Disappointing experiences are given five times the neural weight than positive experiences. So even though they're bad and scary, we are very often drawn to repeat the traumas, emotional wounds, and attachment disturbances from the past because they're familiar. But there's another reason why we are drawn to uh, essentially uh, make poor choices at times if we have insecure attachment. And here's where it gets a little more complex, but it's really worthy, worth understanding because here's where we can actually undo our attachment styles and become what's called earned secure. So, unless if you are secure, great, but <laughs> I, I, I meet so few. <laughs> I know that it's 50% of the population, but uh, I'm just not uh, running into them that uh, So, um, the feelings that we associate with attachment are extremely powerful in determining our behaviors. If you follow either Antonio Damasio or Gerd Geigerenzer or Alan Shore or um, I think George Lakoff and so forth, uh, basically, we, it's very clear that the way people make decisions is not logically. We love to believe we're a logical, rational species. We're not. We're an emotional species. We like to use logic and reason to justify our choices afterwards, but the neural impulses that actually create choices and behaviors for us are actually by far and away from the right brain, and they're, they're generally using regions that have been formed very early in life 
and carry long, long memories of early attachments and, and emotionally wounding events. So it works like this. Um, when we make a decision, uh, well, let me, put, let me go back before we make the decision. Every event in your life, uh, especially early events, which have far more weight in the brain, in the right hemisphere, uh, when there's an important event, there, your right hemisphere remembers how you felt physiologically in your body during that experience. These are known as somatic markers. So for instance, if you were sad in childhood and then your parent gave you a grilled cheese sandwich and you, your body felt less sad, you started to feel excited, there was this sense of elation, energy flowing up, there was a release of dopamine and all the attendant reward states. So there was this feeling of bliss in you. Then in the future, whenever you're stressed out and you're thinking about what to eat and you just happen to think about a grilled cheese sandwich, guess what? You will choose that every single time. It doesn't matter how much you want to eat something healthy or you want to have a green vegetable, doesn't matter. Your body is going to override all of those good wishes for, you know, you know, eating healthier for the new year or whatever. And it's going to persuade you. It's going to essentially impel you to choose the grilled cheese sandwich. On the other hand, if uh, you go through a negative event, uh, say you're in second grade, there's a substitute teacher who throws a surprise test, you do poorly, and you feel really uncomfortable and ashamed and your stomach's tight and you feel a sense of uh, fear about what will happen when you come home. And you will then every time in the future somebody throws a surprise, you might feel this negative, strong, somatic marker that will make you want to leave or give up or not even try. And so the feelings that are associated in early life events, whenever we stumble upon anything that reminds us, we will follow those feelings and make decisions based on them. Especially, so for example, if you go out to a restaurant the foods that in your past made you feel good, when you look at their names on the menu, they recreate those positive feelings in your body, and that's what you'll decide to order. Likewise, if in childhood, in your attachment, when you were with your key caregiver, you felt relaxed and at home and safe, you will associate those somatic markers, that's called the somatic marker hypothesis, you associate those feelings with attachment. And when you go on a date, you will only respond to someone who recreates those feelings of being safe, being relaxed, being at home. But suppose you had insecure, anxious attachment in childhood where you had to be excited because it was infrequent when you got attention and you had to become really vigilant and on your guard and really behaving well to keep your parent available. Well, then on a date, you will only respond to someone who creates those feelings in you. You won't have the markers of secure, relaxed, being at home. You'll have these markers you're looking for. Who makes me feel uh, like they're not really truly 100% into me, that I have to really work to keep their attention, or, you know, I'm not really sure uh, who makes this feeling of excitement. And that feeling of on-edge excitation in adult language turns into, hilariously, fireworks, magic, electricity, when it's actually a sign that your right hemisphere from the very beginning knew that they weren't truly available for intimacy. Then there's those with avoided attachment who associated being with caregivers with this feeling of deadening, I don't want attachment, I just want to get my needs met and thank you very much, I want out of here, I just want to go back home and play with my toys. 
And then in adult life, they're looking for somebody that they can get their needs met. They don't want, they don't want to have any commitment and they're looking for those feelings. And believe it or not, those feelings are actually in the avoidant created by the anxious person. The anxious is feeling, the anxious person's feeling of attachment means excitation, hypervigilance, not knowing. Those feelings are created by the avoidant. And so what we see so commonly in attachment is this anxious avoidant trap where one person who is essentially terrified of re-experiencing abandonment but expects it and is trying for secure, you know, bonding but always choosing emotionally unavailable, avoidant, dismissive people because they're both recreating internally the same feelings or somatic markers that they early on in life associated with attachment. And of course the disorganized child is looking for somebody who literally make them feel frightened and dissociate very often. They're literally looking for someone who would recreate that feeling of a war zone. So, um, the integration of gut feelings into decision making can be very beneficial, but in the case of an insecure attachment, it always leads us to repeat unsatisfactory behaviors and it's called repetition compulsion. The fact that we're drawn to people who remind us of early caregivers and we're drawn to the feelings we associate with early caregiving makes us trapped in the same repetitive cycles uh, that can last for a very long time. The longitudinal studies of attachment show that if you are insecure in childhood, there is an 80% chance you will be insecure throughout your life. However, that's not as bleak as it seems because 20% will actually change. Some will get worse, <laughs> but many will get better. And there's lots of studies, I mean virtually every study shows that people can become earned secure, which means they didn't start out secure, but they actually became earned secure because they did a number of things to essentially uh, recreate re what's called reparative emotional experiences. And so what do they do? Well, one thing, they will A, go into some form of therapy or they will go into some you know, program where they get support. Two, very often they will, if they want to succeed in becoming insecure, no matter how attractive they are to people that are not emotionally available, they will say yet, which I think is Russian for no. Uh, they'll say, no, thank you. I know that you're hitting, strumming all of the right chords in me. I know that you're just my type and that everything that I feel right now is exciting and magical and electric and, and all that, but no because you're not creating the feeling of being secure, being that I can relax, this feeling that I can just be myself, that I don't have to put any effort to keep your attention, that I can just be and expect that you'll be available. So, um, in our meditation tonight, we're gonna be using some Buddhist visualization techniques, and what we're gonna be doing is we're going to essentially repair if we have any associations of attachment with anything other than the feeling of being safe, secure, at home, relaxed. We're actually going to create those feelings so that we'll have those somatic markers available to us. So in the future, if for example you're going on a date or you're in a relationship, you'll be able to become aware of the physiological states in your body with each new event or each interaction. And you can check whether someone is activating a sense of unease, the expectation of abandonment, whether they are essentially creating a state of emotional deadening, or whether you actually feel safe and whether you actually feel relaxed, that you, can, you actually are in the highest state of your nervous system the ventral parasympathetic. 
The beautiful thing about visualizations is that they're very influential in your right hemisphere, which holds all of the, which guides your attachment. And two, there's a lot of recent studies, especially at Harvard, that shows that simply visualizing something can actually rewire your brain. Your brain's neuroplastic and it can be rewired simply by visualizing an event. So for example, there was a famous study where they had a group of people split into two groups. One group um, uh, practiced a piano every day for two months. The second group only imagined that they were practicing the piano, but never got anywhere in the same room as the piano. They just visualized a piano and imagined doing their doing scales. The third group didn't have to do shit. That's what's called a what do they call control group. Yeah. So when they did the fMRI scans subsequent after the two months, they found that there was no change in the somatosensory region of the group that did nothing. But both groups, the group that actually played the piano and the group that simply visualized playing the piano, showed significant changes in the somatosensory load. They literally started to wire their brain as if they could play the piano. So it didn't matter if they were actually doing it or not, if they were visualizing it, it still change the somatosensory region. And there's lots of other studies that have followed suit. So in our meditation, what we're going to do is we are going to imagine a secure caregiving or attachment scenario. We're going to visualize it. We're going to actually create the feelings of security in us. And then in the future, it doesn't have to be even in romance. It can be with friendships or at work or with a checking uh, whether we feel comfortable with someone. Instead of following the circuits in the brain that are ill-equipped to make smart decisions, we're actually going to follow the right, we're going to incorporate the right hemisphere and we're going to teach it how to help us make smart decisions with people. Whew. That's the talk. So let's meditate. So just allowing yourself to settle into your body. Just try to have the most comfortable upright position. If you sometimes, due to just being tired or just a tendency to uh, drift off when you close your eyes, the only thing you need to do is just tilt your head up like you're looking at a tall building just to counteract that tendency to slouch in front of your, for the head to hang forward. But otherwise, just try to allow as much ease into the upper body. And if you just find a good balance where your head, the top of your head feels in line with your shoulders, which feels in line with your sit bone, then you're, you don't have to put very much effort into sitting and practice. The better the balance, the less work, and the more pleasurable your practice will be. Imagine that you could pull all of your Attention back 
into your body, much like a, I guess, a fisherman reeling back in. The bait, just reeling it back in, pulling the bait back from the ocean, pulling your attention out from the world around you, back into your body, and then if you can't imagine your awareness begin to spread, lowering itself down into the body. So instead of feeling like consciousness is occurring behind your eyes and between your ears, where we, the mind just locates it, but that's just a convenience. trying to spread awareness or the sense of the observing. Quality of the mind, try to spread it down into the body, like an elevator lowering to the sub-basement. Trying to get as close as you can to the sensations of your body nothing mediating, nothing in the way. Becoming aware of the movement of the breath in the body. So if we're inclined to develop a greater state of ease, what we want to do is Open up the chest, keep the shoulders rotated, open. Engage in the vagal break to lower your heart rate. Long, slow exhalations. The longer the exhalation, the more you induce states of calm. Long exhalations release acetylcholine. Engage the vagal break, induce rest and digest. You also want to try to become aware of the breath in your belly and emphasize the movement of the belly, creating a very soft abdomen, expanding on the in-breath, releasing on the out-breath. When people are either napping or in a deep state of ease, you actually see the full expression of the breath in the abdominal movements of inhalation and exhalation. Trying to keep the mouth from any sort of pinched close, just stretching the corners of the mouth. It's wide apart, kind of neutral, unforced expression. And encouraging the eyes to settle.
when the eyes, the retinal muscles relax, they actually incline the fusiform gyrus and other regions in the brain to switch off and that's the parietal lobe as well so it's very relaxing to settle the eyes like they're softening into two pools of warm water they've nothing to keep track of and on the other hand if you are tired, falling asleep, and you want to bring more energy in, you focus all the attention on your in-breath, make the in-breath really big and full, just release the out-breath, don't make it long, and you want to breathe into your chest, and people are excited and awake and alert, the articulation of the breath is in the chest. You want to create more energy in the upper body. So you can steer your meditation by how you breathe, where you breathe. sit in silence. So we want to cultivate a state of greatest restorative state we can and also a state where we're truly present. When we're truly present experiences can really be not only restorative and useful, but they can leave memories that influence us in the future. So try to Encourage the mind to return to one of those states where you arrive at a favorite place. Blanket on a beach or a seat by a river or a cabin in the woods or a trail or a couch in a very safe, warm apartment any place where you have everything you need, there's nothing missing, nothing to do, nowhere to go. It's one of those times where you just want to fully land in your life. Put aside all of those needs to get somewhere, do something. Your job is just to be fully present. Just drink in this moment, return to your body and bring it a appreciative awareness knowing how throughout your life it's been keeping you alive. Every breath, sustaining your existence. Again, putting aside any thoughts about the past or future or anywhere else that's not fully right here.
And if your mind drifts away, that's okay. Every time it does, it's a new opportunity to ingrain engrave circuits that will incline you back to your real, true, present experience. It's like returning home to the body. Each time your mind wanders off, just gently, appreciatively escort it back.
So this time, I'd like to invite you to use your imaginative capabilities, your ability to visualize a situation that's not actually happening in the present. So I'd like you to visualize Just bring, conjure images of some future time in your life when you feel that you're in a really safe, secure partnership or relationship with someone. This could be either a romantic figure or a friend or just someone reliable, available, interested just create the scene where would you be what do you associate with connection for some of us this might be lying around on a Sunday afternoon or cooking a meal or walking through a farmer's market or a bookstore lying around on the couch reading a magazine just being with someone feeling of someone being available you don't have to visualize them but just visualize a setting that you associate with being secure if an image of who they might be that you're sure is someone that you visualize, you create, that creates that feeling that's fun. But if you don't want to actually visualize who it would be with, just visualize the setting. You're in this intimate situation and just know that there's someone with you. And try to be as detailed in your visualization. What are you doing? Where would you be? What time would it be? And in this situation, you know there's someone who cares, you feel really seen, understood, you don't have to do anything to keep this person's interest in you, so see if you can just open your chest, soften your belly, keep your arms as soft as you can, just visualize being safe. See if you could sense what would be the perfect distance between you and this person. Would they be standing right next to you? Would they be sitting nearby? What would make you feel the most comfortable? But in this setting you knew that if you want to get close this person would be very positively receptive to it but if you also needed some time alone they would be okay with that too 
there's no weight or burden to this experience. Really try to soften all the muscles in your body now. And if it helps, you can put a hand on your heart center and just feel the warmth of your hand. And just as you visualize being in a situation where there's someone available, just breathe into this area where you feel your hand's warmth. And just try to use the warmth to spread it throughout your body, releasing any tension in your shoulders, softening your belly. You don't have to do anything. There's nothing missing from you. Everything about you is perfect for the secure attachment. There's nothing you need to change. You can relax and just try to find now any feeling in your body, any expression of the secure experience. Just get to know it. What does it feel like? Where do you feel this sense of safety? Try to become completely aware of the physiological state of being safe, being secure with someone. The more you know these sensations and can tell them apart from the feeling of excitation, or the feeling of just diminishing our needs. The more you can discern what it feels like to be securely connected, you can use this to guide you like a North Star. People and situations where your needs will be met. Just knowing what's the difference between being secure, being excited, So, taking your time, as slow as you want, just gradually opening your eyes enough to see the ground in front of you, and try to bring any feelings or awareness of your body with you into the rest of the evening. The more you can practice mindfulness, which means simply being aware of how you feel, what's going on internally, the more you can use the wisdom that's being expressed through your body, which is invariably holds so much of the insights, experiences, and needs of your right hemisphere fully integrated minds.